You are listening to the Out in the Open Radio Hour on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We are always streaming live on WVEW.org and always on the radio at 107.7 FM, I suppose. I already said that. Um, and the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and the guests and not of the radio station. And today we are talking with the brilliant Malika Puffer um, about all kinds of stuff, about abolition and funding and alternatives to policing and um, how we're actually caring for each other in community and a million other things. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm like, I wish we had a whole show that was just um, talking with you, Malika, about all the things, you know, we've already said there's so much to say about all these topics and um, so I, I hope this is not the only time that you want to talk with us. Um, but yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? What do you want folks to know about you? Thanks, HB. Um, yeah, so my name's Malika. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I uh, live, lived in Br the Brattleboro area for like seven years now. Um, and uh, I identify as a psychiatric survivor, um, which is to say that I feel like the experiences that I had in mental health treatment from like, you know, 14 to my uh, mid 20s um, were uh, more harmful than they were helpful and are sort of a, an experience I'll be recovering from for a long time, if not always. Um, and so the work that I do now is uh, I do peer support and a, a huge part of that is advocacy, both with individuals, but um, for me, primarily um, like systems level and cultural level um, advocacy to shift the way that people in the mental health system and in the world are responded to. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, I, all the questions feel so big, you know, I'm like, um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about, I guess, starting off with just your thoughts of connections between like um, psychiatric survivorness and like surviving like prison or I, I guess connections between like the like mental health care hospitalization slash prison incarceration involuntary system and like what most of us think of when we hear like the word prison and jail um, and maybe like yeah, some some of the I don't know, like what how those things are connected. Yeah, I mean, I think there's they're super connected. I think it's it's challenge. It would be a challenge to like argue with a lot of legitimacy that they aren't essentially the same. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's just a huge number of parallels and overlaps between uh, prison and what we call psychiatric hospitalization, which is another form of incarceration. Um, and just to like illustrate for, you know, many people haven't been inside of those institutions. Of course, many have, but mm. um, in my experience, um, that has included uh, being strip searched before you go mm. in. Um, of course, doors are typically locked. Communication with the outside world is uh, typically restricted. And you don't have your phone, um, things like that. Um, and I think it's a total institution and to use the, the concept from Irving Goffman um, where you know your bodily autonomy is so controlled your movements of when you use the bathroom when you eat what you eat 
um, your access to fresh air, which is not something that is guaranteed, um, is that that's all controlled. And um, and I feel like you, you know a lot of people go to the hospital by choice, um, and um, and so that's I guess uh, one possible distinction. Mm. But the the thing about that is that a lot of people who go quote unquote voluntarily are going in the context of a threat of, well, if you don't go quote unquote voluntarily, then you will go involuntarily. But even mm. when someone is choosing themselves, I want to be in the hospital rather than wherever I am in the world, that's in the context of lack of a better place to be. Most people don't <laughs> need to be behind locked doors. And, um, and also if you decide you change your mind, you get there and you're like, oh, wow, like this isn't what I need. This isn't what I thought it was. You can only leave on your own volition if the doctor or people in power agree that that is a good idea. Mm. Um, so in, in that way, there's really no such thing as voluntary hospitalization because you're only free to make your own choices if they're agreed with. Yeah. Mm. Which, I, yeah, it sounds like, you know, I know I have a lot to learn about this system. And I think a lot of folks who haven't, like, would, you know, uh, yeah, I'm noticing myself struggling with like in drawing a distinction for myself between prison and this system and wanting to say, yeah, just, um, yeah, I'm finding myself wanting to say, I think a lot of folks have a lot of misunderstandings about prisons and about psychiatric, like incarceration and facilities. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, this notion of you can voluntarily put yourself in but you can't get yourself out like mm -hmm. that seems huge um yeah. and like these notions right that like both of these in some like really strange way i think a lot of people think they're like places that you go for help right there's like this mm -hmm. whole like rehabilitation notion or like healing notion but we know that all of these places create more harm um, mm -hmm. for people and communities than they are helping to fix. Right. Yeah. And I think they seem so necessary because, mm. uh, because we don't have the resources that people actually need. So it's really true. It's been true in my life that there have been times where I need to get out of my home. I need to be somewhere else. And um, and so then in most circumstances, it's a choice between nothing or something. And so that something can be really helpful in a way, but it comes with all this um, abuse and control. And, um, and so the, it's sort of set up as a false dichotomy. And, and that is why I think we feel so much like it's a necessary piece of our world. Yeah, which brings me to write like these like these history questions um, of like, how did we get to this place? Um, and I think there's been a lot of conversation, you know, in well, for decades and centuries, but much more so, you know, in the last number of months about uh, racist history of policing and incarceration. And I think it's so important to look at um, yeah, like what is the, what are the histories of these institutions that are harming individuals and communities? Like, how did we get here as a way to both remind ourselves it hasn't always been this way and as a way to look for like ways to move us away from that. And I know that you have a lot of knowledge about um, histories of all, many different kinds of things, but yeah, I wonder if going, we can go there for a minute to help us like understand 
rooted in historic experiences like how to get somewhere else yeah i mean it's really it's a really big thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and you know and I, or I, like some some jumping off points and then like i think one way that i handle like a big thing is also like and here's some like amazing resources to look for for more yeah. like you're not going to give us the entire history of all the things now but a little taste for folks and then also some other places to look yeah yeah totally um yeah, I, it's something I'm I'm continuously learning a lot about, and like the deeper I go, the more I find there is to uncover. Um, and and I'm I'm reading actually some really good books about this right now. One of them is um, Disability Incarcerated, um, mm. which uh, is is just incredible. Um, so yeah, like the uh, asylum, which. Uh, you know, it just has this fascinating history of being like a place to dump all all different kinds of people who don't really fit into capitalism, who who mm. like aren't um, you know it, productive through that lens. Um, it, it's a you know fairly recent invention and is not like an essential part of of human life. Um, and yeah, it has had, had such a role too in um, colonization. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more knowledgeable, I think, about, like, the more modern history and not the, yeah. uh, you know, just, like, in the uh, 20th century and late mm -hmm. uh, 19th century, which is really when um, the DSM was developed, um, and that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders um, that has uh, really had an extremely significant role in the way that we collectively conceptualize of um, mad people and madness um, and yeah I, I try to think like what is what is most important points to share with people I guess you know what what comes to mind for me is that the idea of who is like what is sanity and what is insanity, mm -hmm. what is like healthy or normal and not is such a uh, cultural question. And we have answered that question in a cultural way that sort of masquerades as a scientific answer. Um, and, and, and our culture of course is white supremacist and it's ableist mm -hmm. and it's capitalist and, and patriarchal and all of those things. And so also our answers to the questions about uh, what is normal or healthy is informed by those values. Um, and uh, so that's how we've ended up in a situation even now, even post uh, quote unquote deinstitutionalization where so, you know, people who are so disproportionately people who are poor, people of color, um, queer and trans people and women are um, incarcerated um, under the guise of for your own good. Um, oh. Yeah, and you know, I think there's a lot to say too, specifically about the history of psychiatry and racism, anti-Black racism and um, anti-Indigenous racism um, that is, yeah, like dark and fascinating and like just hugely unknown in our like you know, in the public narrative. Yeah, yeah. 
that may be right there's also these notions of like what's safe or not not only like what is normal but i think like who who is who is considered safe and then who is by default like yeah considered unsafe and and then what follows from that is like who needs to be locked up who needs to be brought away who needs to be dealt with with someone with a gun when like maybe they just don't that like no none of no to any of that basically Mm -hmm. um yeah you also said disproportionate which i i have been like noodling on this word the folks that i work with know this like i think you know we're going to be and are already in this conversation talking about abolition and i think like to me something about like I'm not saying you, but I think a lot of folks use, like, you know, we hear all the time, like, disproportionately affected people, disproportionate this, and I think, like, I finally had a realization earlier this spring that was like, oh, something about that never really felt like, is this really what we're working towards, is to have, like, everyone, like, proportionally affected? (laughs) Like, no, I don't feel interested in that. Like, I, you know, to me, like, the percentage of people that we, that I want to be having these experiences is zero. And I think like, that's what we're, you know what I mean? And it's so interesting how much that um, proportional statistics can really drive a conversation when I think what we're really talking about is getting, yeah, getting to the places where no one is affected by um, this experience of incarceration or this experience of like being considered an unsafe person or anyway. Mm -hmm, mm Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that what, what I take away from information that, you know, uh, exposes disproportionate um, impact is the degree to which uh, those, um, you know, harmful and coercive interventions are um, socially, like, informed by our, like, cultural ideas and values and, um, and are not the objective, scientific, uh, benevolent, thing that they purport themselves to be. Um, and so I think that it, it, you know, that can be used as a way to sort of break down the credibility of those systems, which is one of the like sort of abolitionist um, tactics that it feels important to me. But yeah, absolutely. Like the goal is not, we're all equally terribly <laughs> affected. <laughs> Yeah. Like sometimes you have, sometimes I feel like I have to laugh. At, you know, it's just like everything is like so screwed up right now and always. So yeah. I appreciate I appreciate moments of like yeah, just uh huh. Here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you said benevolence. I feel like there is a lot of that. There just seems like there is a lot of a lot of that perspective inherent in um, in these kinds of systems that are really holding a lot of people down. Of just like. You know, we see that in, you know, yeah, in, in indigenous experiences and experiences of queer and trans people of like, we know better and we know best whoever, I mean, white supremacy culture it tends to be like that we and I think mm-hmm. um, it seems like that's some of the danger too of holding up um, social work and social workers and systems that are there as alternatives to police and policing of this like gentle benevolence um, that like I think we're we're being led to believe is like somehow more liberatory than um, like the like dangerous violence of like tasers and handguns. Um, right, and and it's really just more insidious. Mm. Um, it just is a way to sort of put up a veil 
over what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm feeling like, yeah, there's so many places to go and a little bit amped up. Um, let's go, well, both back and forward to, I guess I want to take us like to, to this idea of abolition. And I think, you know, we've, we've already mentioned several times in this conversation, there's a lot of misunderstandings I think that folks have about all of these related issues that we've been talking about. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what folks mean when they say abolition. And I think a lot of people mean a lot of different things when they say abolition. Um, Like for you, when you use that word or you talk about those ideas, like what does that mean for you? Mm. Um, Well, so my uh, identity as an abolitionist has, is, uh, you know, came first in the realm of psych- psychiatry um, and then later expanding to other things, which is sort of, I don't know, maybe not as common. Um, mm-hmm. And so within my work, which I've, I've framed, that I've been doing for seven years, I've framed ex- explicitly as abolitionist, um, you know, pretty openly. Um, and I have found really useful um, a model um, articulated by Bonnie Burstow, who's a um, recently passed radical social worker. Um, and, and really, the, they're questions that were taken from um, the prison abolition movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about, like, is what we're thinking about doing going to expand the net of this carceral mm-hmm. system? Is it going to lend credibility to it? And is it going to take us towards the long-term goal of abolition of this system no longer existing. Um, and so- Can you for, say yeah. real quick for folks who are not familiar like with the word carceral, can you, what that is? Yeah, so I think that's, um, you know, re- related to um, incarceration. Um, and so things that, you know, control and um, interventions that are, uh, connected to uh, like psychiatric incarceration, the psych hospital as an institution, which of course reaches its sort of tentacles out into the community beyond its walls. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that was a new word for me a couple years ago. And I was like, oh, I think I've seen that word up, come up a lot more often recently. Um, yes. I think to me, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, well, you just said wider net. It's like a broader, more inclusive like helping to think about the whole um system and also i I have appreciated using it as an alternative to justice system um Mm -hmm. i feel like people always are like justice system and then they want to say something like but we know it's not just or something like that anyway yeah yeah um, language language like that is really really useful it's relatively new language to me as well but it um it's really helpful um and and yeah so i think like Abolition for me is, is, you know, of course, it's a long term. It's not like burn it all down right now, although maybe sometimes that's the thing to do. Um, but uh, the, you know, long term like erosion or attrition. Um, and that is really hard. It takes a lot of vigilance to know, are you doing something that is, you know, of course, it also matters to make people's lives better right now because people are being hurt and dying right now. And um, you know, trying to avoid um, 
having those doing those harm reducing things in a way that's going to get in the way of the long term goal. That's so much of how we've gotten where we are. Mm, yeah, I feel like yeah, those the right people need things to be materially different in the short term while we're getting to the like longer term goals. Um, and yeah, this like uh, obstructionist idea, it's not quite obstructionist, but sort of like, I think you said like expanding the net and um, like that was something in this, you know, in the last few months that was helpful for me to just learn more about and think more about of all, all reforms are not equal, right? There's some that are, there's some that are expanding power and resources and money um and there's some that are reducing um right yeah so it seems like you know in a lot of conversation i was gonna say i was like ooh, do i want to say liberal here leftist i don't know in a lot of conversation i have seen um folks maybe who are newer or less comfortable with like abolition or the idea that like the community can help take care of ourselves. Um, folks, uh, like a very popular go-to is like social workers as an alternative to the police. Um, and like putting, really putting out at the forefront, like this is definitely what we should be doing. This is the solution. We'll just have all these social workers go in and like take over everything. And like that will, that will be our solution um, to shifting away from the police. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what do you think about that? I think I have some ideas of what you think about that, but I want folks to hear from you. Um, like, what's your reaction to that idea? Yeah, I think I'm thinking about a comment that I saw recently on Facebook where someone was like, I would much rather watch a social worker de-escalate a situation than watch the police try to do it. And I was like, yeah, totally. I would much rather watch that also because that looks probably much more peaceful or something. Um, but really what's happening is the, the harm is just being made invisible. Mm. Um, and also like, yeah, social workers or, you know, mental health professionals are sort of using those terms generally, um, yeah. like rely on the police so much. So I think adding social workers doesn't necessarily mean the police aren't also responding. Most of, you know, I know that most uh, mental health professionals or social workers rarely respond to public situations without the police. So, um, and I think what I, I think about mental health professionals or social workers as sort of those arms of the carceral institution. Um, so like the social workers are to the psych hospital as the police are to the prison. And mm -hmm. so those arms function both to bring people into the institution and also to um, ext like extend the reach of the institution beyond its walls um, in ways that I think just the public has no idea about how that functions in terms of psychiatry, just like logistically what that even means. But um, yeah, it's, it's powerful. Absolutely, yeah, I think that, that analogy seems really helpful for like just illustrating. Um, those connections that, yeah, like the analogous arms. Um, and I think, you know, again, this like idea of benevolence um, and like we know best um, seems like it's coming in again and again and again. Um, yeah. What, I guess like, what do you, what do you think we should do? <laughs> Not like Malika solved the problems, but I think there's some, like there's some things that we 
have here in our local community that already can bring us somewhere else um, mm -hmm. while holding up community. There's some things that are happening in other places. Um, there's some things that are ideas that aren't happening yet. Um, I guess, yeah, like what's your, when folks are continuing to take us down to like social workers are the solution, like what is a different place that we can go? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a number of things. One is that uh, we, we need just like way more stratification of levels of support in our communities. So that it's, you know, I've been in this in a situation in this town where um, early when I moved here, I, you know, didn't really feel like I had any community and um, didn't know who to reach out to or who to talk to when I was having a really difficult time. And so um, the, the options that were presented to me were like, well, you can talk to a human being, a you know, crisis worker or something, if you go to the emergency room, um, or you can sort of tough it out, good luck. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, I think there, we have the models, we have the knowledge, um, but we don't have the like funding and the people, we have like the blueprints, but not the construction workers mm. to make the things. Um, and those things include, uh, like drop in freak out spaces that are just open. You can go there if you are in a way where you need some human to human support that's not. Uh, subjecting yourself to everything you'll be subjected to in the emergency room, which maybe would be useful for people to know what that even is. Um, and, uh, and we uh, absolutely could have uh, peer support. Like, I don't know how familiar people are with peer support, but, mm. but folks who have uh, their own experiences in the system and of just living uh, through intense distress and madness um, to be available to folks. I think we could have a mobile 24-7 team of folks like that. Um, and we can uh, make, we, we also need like respite places so that there's, mm. you know, if you need to be somewhere else, you need to spend a week or a month or something in another space like there's, there's absolutely no reason. And in fact, we do have a peer respite in Vermont it's called the Lissom, um, and it's two beds, which is mm. so obviously not enough. It's far away, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I think with those resources, um, that, that would be a huge beginning step. I think there's a whole other vision of like what the world would ultimately look like. Um, but mm. that would be a step in that direction. And part of that is shifting this idea that only certain people with certain qualifications can respond to another human in distress and in crisis. Mm. But rather that's something we can increase our capacity as a community to be confident and competent in, in responding to each other. And there's not, it doesn't actually require special knowledge. In fact, like a lot of the knowledge that we, quote unquote, knowledge that we have that we've been taught in health class in high school or something about mental illness um, is actually going to really get in the way of showing mm. up in a helpful way to those conversations and those situations. Yeah, I was thinking about that when, you know, you were describing freakout spaces. And I think there's like this notion, right, notions of expertise, notions of like needing folks, people feeling like they need to understand or there needs to be like right this an expert who's like taking care of it um and i know you know was noticing in myself like a desire to ask a question of like 
yeah, can you describe like, what is that? Or like, why is that a safe thing? And then also wanting to really push that aside and actually like, this work is not about helping everyone understand like what exactly that space is or why someone might need it or how it's safe, but is about like trusting folks that have knowledge and expertise that is outside of like a social work degree or, or like trusted experts um, to like actually trust in community expertise that like this is a kind of space that folks need and it is worthwhile and like something that we should be supporting even if like you as an individual person don't understand like what it is or, or a need for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like the, a lot of those things um, yeah, especially in thinking about like community care for people uh, experiencing extreme states or madness. Like I don't need to, everyone doesn't need to understand like what that experience is like to know that we need something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of like what ifs and fear come up in this conversation. And part of that is because we have like such a thoroughly constructed narrative in our society of um, like, the mentally ill as yeah. like one being a, a thing and two being like dangerous um, and requiring control and um, the I think what people don't understand is uh, you, you know how, how scapegoated people are and misunderstood and also um, how violent the system is and that the, whatever violence happens almost always begins with the violence from the system or the threat of violence. Um, yeah, like, I, can I, if I can just give an example. Um, Absolutely. Uh, there was one time I was in the emergency room. Um, I wasn't uh, a patient. I was um, there with someone else who was. Um, and uh, there was, we could hear right, right sort of in the next room over um, a, another person who was being held um, on, like a psychiatric hold um, in the ER and um, they're being asked to uh, take off their clothes and put on a hospital gown. Um, and the person was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take off my clothes. I don't actually want to be here. I want to go outside <laughs> and leave. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the nurse was just like, well, we need to know that you don't have any weapons on you. So you have to take off your clothes and put on this gown. The person was like, well, I'm not doing that. I don't have any weapons like, no, thank you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it just very, you know, quickly, um, you know, the, the, you know, the hospital staff was like, well, we, we have to know. So like, it's going to happen one way or another. Mm. And the person, I don't know exactly what happened, but very quickly, there were a bunch of people in the room holding the person down um, and, uh, uh, you know, pulling their pants down and giving them an injection, which, you know, I knew because of what the person was screaming in response to what was happening. Um, and that's just what happens. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I don't, don't want to like <laughs> repeat all of it because it's, it's so heavy and hard yeah. and like so, so violent. Um, uh, and then, you know, the person I was with was so disturbed by this that, you know, they tried to intervene and then immediately they were being held and restrained and then all of a sudden there's a syringe headed towards them um and and so that is you know what will go on paper about that incident is that that individual the first one who was restrained was non-compliant <clears throat> um 
and uh, that they had to be restrained. And that will inform, you know, wherever that person goes next, that they are dangerous. Um, and 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 to me, I don't I don't know how to like make it more obvious if it's not to other people. Like that was just you know, such overt, unnecessary violence from the hospital. And that kind of thing happens all the time. Wherever people are listening to it, this in their local emergency departments, that's what's happening. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, but the, the takeaway for that person and people who interact with that person going forward is that they're violent. Yep, yep, absolutely. And it's, it sounds really, um, yes, yeah, it's so like, effing intense that that is happening all the time and that um yeah that people are right like again use this phrasing of like a psychiatric hold is like somehow different it's we know that it's not um but that is sounding like really yeah like analogous to me of like resisting arrest right and like we use that as a cover for more extreme violence to people all the time right um or right like the non-compliance resisting arrest dynamic and or like this notion that um you know it's making me think about police justifications for shooting people and killing people that's like you know i thought they had a gun i thought i saw something and that somehow um, like the, that police officer's experience of like not needing to not experiencing harm is somehow greater than someone else's like need to be alive. And the situation that you're describing being the same, you know, it's like you where, you know, the need for the hospital staff to like know visually with their eyes and confirm that this person doesn't have a weapon is somehow greater than this person's need to not have things injected into their body against their will or you know like keep their clothes on like really basic things and like it's not acceptable um and and i think people who are very against those kinds of things in like policing world justify them with terms like psychiatric cold um and yeah like we that's no no (laughs) we can't yeah yeah. we need to stop we need to stop um yeah yeah i'm I'm i don't know if we have time now but i think it is useful to share like more of those just like nuts and bolts of how the system works because people might not know Um, absolutely yeah, we've got about 15 more minutes. Um, I, I think that'd be great. Let's, let's go there. Yeah, so I guess one, I'm thinking about how people end up in the emergency room and then also what happens from there. And one of the ways that people end up in the uh, emergency room is one, like we already talked about, they don't have any other option. They, they need mm-hmm. something and that's the only available thing. But also people end up there um, non-consensually all the time. Um, and that can happen through like a wellness check where some, you know, anyone really can call the police and say like, I'm worried about this person. Can someone go check on them? And just on Facebook, I, you know, heard about recently a, a situation that's, you know, so, so common. Someone got uh, fired from their job or got laid off. And, you know, not because of any evidence, maybe they haven't like posted in a couple days or something. Uh, People are like, oh, we need to make sure this person's okay because they're probably having a really hard time. And so 
then police, maybe also with a social worker, maybe not, um, show up at the person's house unannounced. Um, lots of people have died that way. Um, and, uh, you know, then uh, someone, then, then they get a crisis screening, um, which is, you, you know, a, a social worker asking a bunch of, of questions about, um, you know, what's going on for them. And uh, what I've observed um, just in my life experience about how those conversations work is that uh, one, if you don't really participate, like a non-answer is a suspicious answer, is a, yeah. um, you know, if the, if, you know, know of situations where someone just has been like, I don't want to have this conversation, actually, like, I don't need you, and I don't want to answer your questions, and I don't want you to do to me what I, what you can do, and so I just don't want to engage, and in that situation, uh, not always, but like, often enough, the, the person will be like, well, I don't really know, uh, or even if the person is answering, they're saying, no, I'm fine. No, I'm not gonna kill myself. Yes, this thing happened, but like, I'm gonna talk to my friends and I'll be okay. You know, this, a response sometimes is, well, I'm not really sure like if you're okay or not. I don't know if I can believe you. I don't have enough information from you. Therefore, in or to play it safe, mm -hmm. we're gonna move forward with like making sure you get the help you need you know, quote marks around it, um, mm -hmm. rather than the default playing it safe being, we're going to not intrude upon your life. We're not going to violate your civil liberties. Um, and if, you know, someone's in the community and there's a credible, quote unquote, credible, which just means anyone who sounds sort of reasonable to the listener, um, uh, report of someone being in distress, uh, they, they can, um, uh, go through the court and, and quickly get a warrant from a judge to have police bring that person to the ER in shackles, uh, typically. Um, and then in the ER, uh, you know, you're held in a, usually like a special room. Um, in Brattleboro, that room is like, has white walls and like a speaker through the door in case, like they don't want to like directly interact with you and an observation window. And sometimes there's a mattress on the floor. Sometimes there's actually a bed. Um, and, uh, and then I think there's a lot of confusion for people about what can happen next and who's going to decide. I was in the ER with someone a while ago and you know, they're like, oh my gosh, I've just been brought here. I don't want to be here. Like, this is so scary. I don't want to go to the hospital. Who's, who's going to decide? Like what's going to be the mm. process? Has it already been decided? And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, the doctor, you have to have one doctor decide whether, you know, or not they think, they, they, whether they believe you that you can go home or whether they're going to involuntarily hospitalize you. That, that is going to come with an assessment, which will be questions like this. And you can think about your answers. And then there'll be another conversation with another doctor. And they have to agree with the first doctor if you're going mm -hmm. to be involuntarily hospitalized. Um, and uh, the person's like, okay, great, we're strategizing. And then uh, the ER doctor walks in and says, all right, so we're looking for a bed for you and in one of the hospitals. <laughs> and, you know, things like that happen all the time. And also, like, your history and quote-unquote risk factors are considered mm -hmm. when, when those decisions are made. And, and it, in effect, what that means is the more privilege that you have, which is, you know, really counted in a pretty overt way. 
are you financially stressed or not? Do you have um, like social support or not? Have you been hospitalized before or not? Mm. And if those things are, you know, if your answers are um, no, uh, or, or, you know, what they see as more risky, then you're more likely to experience court, you know, force in, in being hospitalized. And if your answers express more privilege, you're more likely to be allowed to go free. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the, you know, you end up in the hospital, um, often in order to get out, you have to agree that you needed to be there in the first place. Mm. You have to agree that you are mentally ill. You have to agree with your diagnosis. You, uh, it's difficult to get out if you don't agree to take uh, the drugs that are recommended. Um, and also um, providers can uh, apply to the court for involuntary medication mm. orders. So then you are, um, drugged against your will, not in a like quote unquote emergency way, like in the other scenario that I described in the ER, but in an ongoing, just like weekly or monthly um, kind of way. And then to leave, you maybe um, are put on a, a outpatient commitment order, which is essentially mm -hmm. like probation or par parole, um, but uh, for psychiatry. And um, some of those are given to people who have, um, you know, broken the law in some way, um, but the majority of those are given to people who just are perceived to be a threat to themselves because they attempted suicide or something like that. Um, so anyway, that's just like a brief snapshot of sort of how that system looks on sort of either side of incarceration. Yeah, that's very helpful. I think, you know, because you hear... I think folks that haven't had that experience you know you hear like oh we have a bed for you I know we're talking a lot about language today but it's like it's not clear what that means mm -hmm. and it's not clear you aren't able to leave it's not clear that you're gonna like conditions of your release are things like having to take medications and drugs that like you may not want to it's never clear that um yeah, like I can imagine, I guess the question is, I think I know the answer, but like, yeah, I can imagine like a condition of release being that you have to agree with your diagnosis. And then I, it just seems very likely that then later down the road, that like agreement is then like probably used as further justification to hospitalize people again after, you know, I don't know. I guess that is a question. Like I, that seems like a tool that that system would like use to further incarcerate people. Um, I think that the it whenever someone's not agreeing with their diagnosis or you know quote unquote lacking insight into their diagnosis, which is how it's talked about, um, which also like can be uh, framed as a symptom. Like there's a, a anosognosia is the idea that your lack of belief that you are mentally ill is a symptom of your mental illness, which is I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to the degree that people don't agree with the diagnosis, they are considered at risk. And um, when, when people are, are deciding whether to extend that order of non-hospitalization, um, that's, you know, I've seen many times that used as a justification for continuing it as well. I still don't know that they're schizophrenic or whatever. Um, and, you know, and meanwhile, like maybe the person like has been doing so much work on like accepting and loving their voices and like having mm -hmm. a relationship with them that is like actually really healing, but to the providers, it's really threatening. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, but when people accept their diagnosis, that, that functions just to make them more compliant. Um, mm. That's, I think, where that investment comes from. Mm, mm, mm. <sighs> I'm thinking about um, like LGBTQ folks and there's such a long history of inclusion in the DSM and like using those things as justifications for incarcerating, you know, our community. And, and I think there's also been just like some real um, like successful movement in, you know, recent years and decades of like getting those things removed. Um, and like, it just like DSM is such a large book and it seems like it would take so long to like get things removed from there one by one. And yet like, that okay. seems like a strategy that is working. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking about like ways to help us make things different. And like, that's a thing that I've seen that is successful. Um, but there's just like so much stuff in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, Again, including I think, like, I think really good examples are um, like obstetrical defiant disorder, mm. which is like essentially just being like any degree of anti-authoritarian. Mm. Um, and, you know, all the personality disorders are just so, uh, I don't know, I feel like those are the ones that are more, sort of most transparent in their like social construction. Um, mm. But yeah, I think I think credibility the credibility of the DSM is uh, waning, um, mm. and I think that's really important. And we're not at all at a place where um, the DSM isn't going to be used uh, for for billing purposes. But I think that you know, sort of what I'm interested in putting energy into is shifting the way that the conversations about it happen, from you know we know this is true about you because you have xyz symptoms to like this is a list of stuff that like you know doesn't have to mean that much it's was you know just created by a bunch of people we have to do something for billing you know is this okay with you and also how do you see your experience mm -hmm. um, and i think that that's sort of a step towards um if that can happen much more broadly i think uh yeah eliminating that, um, you know, that book and the concepts within it completely. Um, yeah. Every time we chip away and we, we eliminate something, it, it does undermine the credibility. Mm. Of yeah. We will get to a different world someday. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I hope. Um, we got a few minutes left. I, yeah, I'm wondering, um, loud car. Um, if we want to talk at all about the new, like, 16 human facility that is proposed, if you'd rather not talk about that, or, yeah, I guess either that place or anything else that you want to say and share with folks in this moment that is, like, very top of mind for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's useful to mention briefly. Um, I think strategy about resisting it is ongoing, but uh, mm. yeah, there's, um, you know, we've been talking about how like sort of it's, it's linguistic trickery to call uh, psychiatric facilities hospitals and not prisons or, or incarceration or something like that. 
but there's even like a further degree of that <laughs> happening right now in that there's um, uh, a res quote unquote residential facility that has existed since Hurricane Irene that is locked, which is not uh, how any other residential programs in the state are. Um, I, when, I, when something's locked, I think that that's a prison. Um, mm -hmm. And, and not a, a residential program that has like a relatively low level of licensing. Um, but they're, they're replacing that facility with a larger one with space for even more people and um, continuing to keep it locked and also adding in a feature that wasn't there before, which is um, restraint and seclusion. You know, part of the architecture of the design it includes that. Um, and this is in the context of DMH claiming repeatedly that they are invested in reducing and ultimately eliminating restraint and seclusion. And um, the, the Department of Mental Health is DMH. Um, and also uh, investing less in uh, inpatient level of care uh, or you know, incarceration um, and investing more in community supports. Um, and yet they're, you know, wanting to expand this facility, expand the degree of coercion within it, uh, which you know is obviously contradictory. And also there's been for the last several years a proposal uh, for the creation of six peer run respite programs around the state, which are desperately needed. I don't know of anyone who thinks that's not needed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least in word, that's what everyone says. Um, and yet the money repeatedly goes into things like this new facility and uh, bailing out the retreat over mm -hmm. and over, um, despite, you know, because of financial troubles, despite the fact that many of the community mental health agencies are in worse financial shape. Um, so there's, uh, there's a difference, a huge disparity between what people are saying and where they're putting their money. And uh, so that's something that I think it makes sense for people who are newly interested in resisting psychiatric incarceration to, um, to pay attention to is this, the, resisting the creation of this new facility um, and, and directing that money elsewhere. So, you know, look out for more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's like, seems so clear in that example that like folks are just making it harder for themselves and all of us by continuing to put money there instead of putting money into things like peer support and peer respite that like not only are I mean, yeah, are preventative and, and healing. And I think, you know, it's like the more money that goes over there, like the less we need these other things, which I think, you know, is possibly a reason why money is not going those places because yes. <laughs> of all the, all the reasons we know that money and power don't go places that it needs to actually go. Um, but yeah, I think, um, that's a helpful summary of that. And, and yeah, I think it's, um, it's a really important time for folks to be learning and hearing more about that, um, self-included. So, yeah. Anything else this moment? I know there's like, yeah, I know there's many more things. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I feel like we did a like, we did a like surface on a bunch of questions. Um, and of you know, there's always more learning. There's always more to say too. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's you know, I just want to say sometimes it's really hard to talk about these things for me, 
um, because uh, the gaslighting in the system is so intense that like, you know, I still haven't shaken that feeling mm -hmm. of like, if I'm talking about how I as a mad person, um, as a psychiatrically labeled person have been mistreated, like that's always, I'm always going to feel on some degree like that's being heard through a lens of sanism also, and that mm -hmm. I will be heard as like crazy or uh, conspiracy theorist or something like that. So there's always like that layer of these conversations to me. And then also like, it's just so overwhelming to talk about because it's so insidious and so big and so powerful and so uh, mis, I don't know if misunderstood is the right word, but there's not like the degree of like politicization about this issue, yeah. even in like pretty radical spaces. And so it just feels like a huge task. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's, I'm feeling um, and yeah. yeah, love to talk more about these things. Absolutely. Well, I know I personally have learned so much from you and other folks in our community that, yeah, are, do talk about these things um, and are so brilliant and helping, yeah, just have helped me learn so much um, about those experiences and about ways to shift that. And I think here um, in Brattleboro and in Vermont on the whole, there's like, there's a, a number of people that like are, have such deep expertise and, and mm -hmm. such knowledge and such just like, yeah, liberatory ideas about how to shift this stuff that I think it's especially important for us to do that work here because there are so many people that have do have been politicized in this way that like everyone can learn, you know, like we can all learn from this. And I think, yeah, um, yeah just like there's, there's so many folks that are so brilliant about this topic. Um, that we have a really good opportunity in our community to make some some really important shifts. So I really appreciate you. Um, just, I could end that sentence there. I really appreciate you. And I also really appreciate you, um, yeah, putting all of this stuff out there and sharing your knowledge and, um, and brilliance and experience um, with folks. And um, yeah, let's, let's keep talking. Let's keep doing the work. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Listen to Indigo Radio. We are a group of educators making connections and deepening understanding. Join us on Sundays from 12 to 1 on 107.7 FM, your community radio station. During the COVID-19 pandemic, groups all over Vermont have set up mutual aid networks to ensure we stay connected and help one another with regular phone calls, shopping for groceries and essentials, and caring for pets, children, and other loved ones. If you are in need or can help others with these services, please contact your local network. In the Brattleboro area, go to BAMAVT.org. Again, B-A-M-A-V-T dot O-R-G. In Marlboro, Vermont, email marlboroucommunitycenter at gmail.com. Again, marlboroucommunitycenter at gmail.com or call 802-257-0801. Again, 802-257-0801. In the Putney area, email putneyvtmutualaid at gmail.com. Again, Putney VT Mutual Aid at gmail.com. For a list of mutual aid and community organizing resources in Vermont, visit the Vermont Council on Rural Development at vtrural.org 
or the Wyndham Regional Commission at WyndhamRegional.org. This public service announcement has been brought to you by WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Hello, this is Eugene Newman, director of the Vermont Jazz Center. The VJC is a proud underwriter of WVEWLP Brattleboro. The Jazz Center is located in the Cotton Mill Hill Building in Brattleboro, Vermont. We are an award-winning nonprofit dedicated to creating and preserving jazz through the presentation of workshops, concerts, and instruction. For further information, check us out online at www.vtjazz.org.